You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, Station One listeners, and welcome to another episode. We have science coming your way. Science! That's right, folks. We are going to be talking about the next year in space. Is this the year space flight takes off? Is, you know, Blue Origin, SpaceX, or NASA going to basically take us all into space? Or is it just going to be another year of just watching rockets just go... You know, we don't know, but it's going to be a lot of fun to talk all about it. The science episodes are always fun with us to talk about. And, you know, here's my favorite scientist joining us, the man who knows any tiki drink, you what's in it with just a sip. This is Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy. You are such a, a mixologist, I should call you. <laughs> no, I am, uh, I am far from that, uh, but... Uh, um, I appreciate it. And uh, on these episodes, I'm, I'm more of like mission control, uh, ground control. Uh, you guys are Major Toms and, uh, and are floating out in space. And, uh, and I learned a lot from you guys. So it's going to be really fun. We've got like a packed science lab tonight uh, because everybody's here. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually we, uh, Dr. Geek and has one assistant, but He's got a whole crew with him this time, so uh, it's going to be fun. He has two beakers with him, basically. So. Two beakers, right, exactly. right. Exactly. So definitely going to be a lot of fun. And we'd it's always to- good to have a spare beaker. Oh, exactly. <laughs> As they go, beep, 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 beep. So it should be a ton of fun. And we definitely would love to hear from you guys at home. What are you guys looking forward to the most in science this year? Please write us, feedback at earthstation1.com. We definitely would love to hear what you have to say about it, because there's some pretty amazing things going on, including today, the James Webb Space Telescope actually is a million miles from Earth and getting ready to take beautiful pictures like nothing we've ever seen before. Should be kind of cool to do and see. Also, a big shout-out to the ESO Network patrons. Hey, folks, thank you guys for listening. We want to thank you, and as a way of saying thank you, we are, of course, giving you brand-new shows. Of course, you can get Earth Station 1, Earth Station Who, and the newly arriving Dragon Con report uh, 48 hours before you hear it in the rest of the world, so it's a little bit of a special for you guys. But you also get ESO Rants and Raves as a new podcast, and, of course, ESO Board Silly, and, of course, the Earth Station DCU Classics. It's pretty cool stuff. You guys got, you know, no one else can hear it. It's only exclusive to the folks at the ESO Network Patreon. And for as little as a dollar a month, you too can help support the ESO Network. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network. Also want to give a huge shout out to our friends over at Tifosi Optics. Tifosi Optics is a Georgia-made sunglass company where you can have really cool shades. And for as little as $25 a month, or glass, blah, blah, blah. for as little as $25 a pair of sunglasses, you can custom make the lenses, you can custom make the colors, you can custom make the frames. It's pretty awesome what you guys can do there. And if you put in the code EarthStation1, you get 10% off your whole order. That's right, folks, your whole order, not just one pair of pair of glasses. Check it out, tofosioptics.com from EarthStation1. And now we're here with new friend of the show, Steve Rubin. Welcome, sir. 
Hi, guys. Welcome to the station. Mike and Mike. Mike Squared. Exactly. Mike Squared. Yeah, oh, we are. We've, been, we've been called Square many times. It's yeah, okay. we are. We are very square. <laughs> we are very square here. Um, for those people who may not be familiar, a quick, uh, quick about like introduction on what you do. Okay, so I'm a working writer, writer producer in Hollywood. I've produced films for Showtime and Hallmark and Indie Sphere, some documentaries. Um, I'm probably best known as a classic film historian and pop cultural writer. I've written six books on the James Bond movies, including the current fourth edition of the James Bond movie encyclopedia. I've done the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. I did a film. I did, I did another film book called Combat Films: American Realism, nineteen forty-five to twenty ten. Former writer for Cine Fantastique. Former promoter, unit publicist. Um, worked for Showtime for ten years, where I made my producing debut in two thousand two on a baseball comedy called Bleacher Bums. Wow, I was I was worried there because you know if you go a little bit longer, it's like okay, we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your your resume is pretty extensive. I mean, that's just the that's just a, a little bit of what you've done, right? I mean, you've done a you've dipped your toe into just about everything. Um, so, but it's easy for me to to start with or where to start for me because where it started for me was in 1981 when I got your book on the James Bond films. That book, which provided a behind the scenes look at all of the uh connery movies the lazenby movie uh all the more movies up to i think um well 1981 right so um and so it was a it was an indispensable resource for me i i, I mean I, I if you look at my copy the, the 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 corners are worn uh you know the the binding is like loose a little bit um so i i have a lot of respect for you for for writing this book but also just that picture on the back cover of you and Jane Seymour. <laughs> that alone right there makes you golden in our eyes. I'm like, man, that guy, that's the guy. Well, you know, the publicist in me uh, looked around and I said, you know, maybe I well, actually I'll back up a little bit. I was, um, I was pitching stories to the LA times. I pitched a story called where have all the James Bond women gone? And I think they liked that article. And uh, I interviewed a bunch of them and then, I just happened to mention to Jane Seymour, would you mind taking some photos? And her publicist was very happy to cooperate. So I, I brought my little 280Z uh, Datsun up into the hills, uh, kind of posing it as a James Bond car. And then my friend, uh, a very, very prominent horror film director named William Malone, who did the remake of House on Haunted Hill, he shot the pictures, and I was very pleased. <laughs> wow, that's even cooler. That uh, I didn't know the who shot the pictures. That's pretty nice. Um, and and so, in order to get those books written, uh, especially this one and the you know the Twilight Zone book, I mean, you have to have a real big passion for these properties because you're really getting in the weeds, right? Yeah, it's it's there's a lot of work involved. I cut off a, a huge uh, task in, um, for instance, with the Twilight Zone. Um, I wanted to do a formal encyclopedia that meant I had to watch all 156 episodes. I had to do 500 bios of the performers. I wanted every major performer in the series to have a bio. So I, I it took two years, and uh, I was very fortunate because I 
I became friendly with Rod Serling's widow, Carol, mm. and she opened the filing cabinets, which was the same thing that happened with the James Bond movies. I interviewed Albert R. Broccoli, the producer of the Bond movies, and he introduced me to his stepson, Michael Wilson, in 1977. Wow. I went over to London and they opened the file cabinets to me. In the Bond film's case, uh, uh, the, um, they gave me the call sheets. So, you know, when you're writing about the history of a movie and how it's made, it's often very difficult to find out where or when they shot things unless you have the call sheet. The call sheet tells you exactly what day they were shooting, what scene, who was in it, with lots of interesting trivia along the way. So to have those uh, call sheets from the first 10 Bond movies was kind of a kind of a Rosetta Stone for a film researcher. And I, I kind of honed this skill when I worked for Fred Clark at Cinefantastique magazine back in the uh -huh. 70s. I was doing retrospective articles on films like The Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds, Forbidden Planet. And I was tracking down literally every living person still around then. And uh, I, the joy that people got from my articles really was an inspiration to me. I even got a fan letter from Leonard Malton. I mean, <laughs> that's wow. pretty awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact is that they respected my research and I, you know, I studied history at UCLA. I was a writer for the Daily Bruin during Watergate. So all of the, everything kind of led to doing these kinds of historical films. And then, of course, when you're writing about the movies and learning how movies are made, you start getting a little bit interested in making your own stuff. And I've been, I've been out there trying to sell films and TV shows now for 20 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I would imagine that you, when getting into the weeds, you, you develop a lot of contacts. And uh, you can use those contacts as well. Um, because back then... I mean, you couldn't just like, you know, there was no thing as a Wikipedia. There was no Google. I mean, I mean, you're doing these books require like some hard journalism, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes a lot of luck. I, I was interviewed for the combat films book. I was interviewing a screenwriter named Ted Sherdeman, who wrote a movie called Hell to Eternity, which some people will remember. 1960, Jeffrey Hunter played an American uh, a Caucasian-American growing up in East Los Angeles who was raised by Japanese-Americans. And when the war broke out and they, they sent all the Japanese-Americans to the internment camps, Guy joined the Marines and single-handedly captured 1,100 Japanese on Saipan. It's one of the great feats of all time. Well, I was interviewing Ted about that screenplay, and he said at one point in the, screen, in the discussion, he said, you know, it kind of reminds me of what I did on Them. I said, you wrote them? Now, them is a big, is my geek out movie of all time. I saw that when I was a kid in the movie theater about the giant ants and the New Mexico desert and everything. So that kind of motivated me to write a letter to Fred Clark at Cine Fantastique, which got me my first writing assignment professionally. So that was, that was very exciting. So sometimes it's little things like that that happen. And uh, the irony is that years later, I met the real guy, Gabaldon, who, um, who play, you know that Jeffrey Hunter played, and I made a documentary which came out two years ago called "The Coolest." Actually, uh, it's called "East LA Marine: The True Story of Guy Gabaldon." And I, it got me a trip to Saipan where I filmed on the island. Wow! Wow! wow. That, that's incredible. Um, uh, when you are so you're making these, or you're you're writing, you're getting behind the scenes. Now, had you always like had you grown up wanting to be behind the scenes? like of the camera and make movies and tell stories or were you 
was that a, a change that came later? Much later. I grew up uh, in a family of movie lovers. I was an only child. I lived across the street from a movie theater from the ages of five to ten. So I literally lived at the Fox West Coast Stadium Theater on Pico Boulevard in West L.A. And uh, I was there every weekend. I saw, you know, those were the days when they had kitty matinees. And usually they were all genre related. You know, it was Terror from the Year 5000 and, you know, the... uh, uh, you know, the blob and just classic science fiction during the golden age when Corman was pumping them out and American International and even the studios got into the craze. So I saw all the classic science fiction movies at the stadium on the big screen, very much inspired by that. And then I'd come home and I'd watch all the other movie channels and then um, I'd go with my parents to see more, uh, you know, parent type movies. So I was around movies a lot, but I never, ever thought of it as a potential career at all until I started writing for my college paper and starting realizing that you could interview people. And they say when you write your first book, write something that you're really passionate about. And I decided to write a book about war movies because that was another genre I was really into. Um, when you are looking for your next project, be it a book or uh, behind the scenes or documentary or even uh, fiction, what 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 sparks you? What what is the thing that makes you move forward on a particular project? It's a very good question. I think after writing the combat films book, selling it to McFarlane and selling about 490 copies, I realized that passion alone is not good enough. You got to find a topic that is pretty wide reaching. So obviously settling on the James Bond movies was a coup for me because 40 years later, I'm still writing about the Bond movies. It's been great. And I've had a great uh, run with it. Uh, Twilight Zone, the same thing. Everybody loves the Twilight Zone. It's a perennial. So I'm always looking for projects that uh, reach as many people as possible. I, you know, as a filmmaker, I, I don't see myself as a Sundance type of filmmaker making kind of an idiosyncratic little picture with some drama and emotion. That's kind of not me. I'd rather try to do a new movie version of them or something like that. You know, something that uh, can reach a lot of people. A lot of the projects I'm developing are pretty unique. I've actually focused on comedy the last six years because I feel the comedy genre has fallen into a deep trench. Mm. Uh, if you're seeing comedy in the movies, generally it's raunchy. And I want to get back to the kind of comedies I've always loved. Films like, you know, Back to the Future, Night at the Museum, Ghostbusters, where you can take your 89-year-old grandmother and your six-year-old and you don't have to be embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what uh, what right now is is something that uh, you've got out that's exciting for you, right? What people should check out right now? Well, I think uh, I think my latest Bond book, the James Bond movie encyclopedia, fourth edition is my first book featuring color, which is very exciting. Uh, I have over 400 photos in the book. Uh, and I also have artwork supplied by Jeff Marshall and Brian May. So I have gorgeous kind of evocative um, poster ideas for a lot of the Bond movies. I don't know if you know Jeff Marshall, but he's one of the great James Bond artists, digital artists. So uh, just gorgeous paintings. Uh, I also had the fun of reaching out to um, 
uh, Signet uh, and the company that owns them now, and I got the them to I got the reproductions of the covers of the first paperback James Bond novels that appeared in the U.S. Oh wow! That we all read in middle school. Those of us who were around at that time. So those are reproduced in the book, which is great. And then I redesigned the whole book. You know, the thing about writing an encyclopedia is it's a lot of fun, but you've got to make it really attractive to get people to buy the new version. So right. rather than just adding some new photos in the book, I redesigned the whole book and I rewrote most of it to change the focus. I, it's, it's published by Chicago Review Press, which is very, very strong uh, in their editing and they want very, very specific materials. So I got rid of a lot of what I consider to be arcane trivia like signposts and phone numbers and the type of things that you win trivia contests on, but take up a lot of room in the book. And I replaced it with more extensive bios of the cast. So we learn more about Bernard Lee, who played M in the first Sean Connery's. We learn more about Claudine Auger, who played Domino and Thunderball, my favorite Bond girl, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and And this goes all the way up to No Time to Die, it does. It does. Um, which I would, would, was the delay with the release? Did it help? Like get you like more together with the book? No, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I was all <laughs> I was all set to see the movie so I could report on it, you know, enormously in the book, and lo and behold, it's gone, oh. and I had to turn in the book. So I scrambled. I, I, I tried to work as a secret agent to find as much information on the movie. And I have to give Eon Productions credit. They put the cone of silence over this movie like oh, nobody's yeah. business. As you know, generally, the scripts or the information on a new Bond movie eventually does leak. But the, there were no leaks on this movie. Uh, up until the time the book was published... I still did not know what Rami Malek's plan was. You know, it was uh, they they kept tight as a drum on that. To be honest, having seen the movie twice now, I was going to say you still don't know. I still don't know what his plan. Is. I'm like, oh, I was going to say, I'm like, I could get this book and finally know. No, just kidding. Um, it's frustrating uh, because I love. By the way, I love the new movie, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers. But I think uh-huh. that uh, I think there's. Um, a little more attention should have been paid to uh, the villain's plan because it was a little, uh, little confusing to me. But if there's great, great move, uh, great moments in the new James Bond movie. So if you haven't seen it, it's a must. Awesome, awesome. Well, it's it's great having you here, uh, Mike. I think he's uh, sufficiently warmed up to to venture into geek seat territory. Well, you've heard of good cop, bad cop. Well. <laughs> This is Goofy Cop now, so it's okay. We're ready for it. All right. Steve, are you ready for your first question in the geek seat? Yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a deep breath. Okay, let's go for it. All right, Steve. What was your favorite geek out moment? My favorite? I have that, – that's a very challenging question because I have a great geek out moment almost every day. But I would say the one that stands out in my mind is I was 11 years old. I was riding my Stingray, Schwinn Stingray in Culver City, and I heard a voice at a stoplight. Uh, Can you tell me where MGM Studios is? And I turned around, and it was Steve McQueen in a red Ferrari. Oh, wow. So that's, that's, That's that's, that's pretty awesome. 
We oh, actually yeah. we actually st- stood at that corner for about fifteen seconds and talked about slot cars and and motorcycles and things like that. It was fun. That's pretty cool for fifteen seconds. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's very cool. What was your most disappointing geek out moment? Ooh, um, I worked as the unit publicist on Honey I Blew Up the Kid, which was the sequel to Honey I Shrunk the Kids. And I did not have a good relationship with Rick Moranis. Uh, really? <laughs> you know, I loved Rick Moranis. I first met him on the set of Ghostbusters years before, and he was going through some, uh, to be honest, he was going through a very traumatic period. His wife had recently passed away, and I just was not the kind of person he needed to see. I have a very sunny disposition. I'm the publicist on the show. I'm kind of like the cheerleader. I don't think he wanted to see my smiling face every day. So that wasn't fun. Okay. No, completely understand that. Completely understand that one. What geeks you out the most? I'm a classic movie guy. You know, every night when I turn on the television, which drives my wife crazy, the first channel I go to is Turner Classic Movies. I just, I just love TCM. Uh, I love catching up on either movies I've never seen or just just the rerunning of, you know, it's funny. I get a lot of grief from people saying, how can you watch a movie 50 times? Well, how can you look at the Mona Lisa 50 times? I mean, frankly, it's the same thing. It's art. You know, I just love I, lately I've been I've been geeking on Robert Mitchum and Marilyn Monroe in River of No Return, which is a Western directed by Henry Hathaway. And it's it's great. It's great. And little Tommy Reddick is the kid in the movie. And, of course, we know him from Lassie, the first Lassie guy. Oh, sure. Sure. Totally makes sense. What turns your geek off? Dull, boring, idiosyncratic movies that have no pacing to them whatsoever. I, I just I just can't get into them. You know, it's just I sometimes think that, listen... I light a candle to anybody who can make a movie because it is so difficult. But sometimes I, I, I think they forget that aren't we going to the movies to be entertained? You know, I understand issue movies and they're important to our society and they have their place. But I don't go to the movies to be, you know, dealing as much with issues as much as being entertained. I mean, those those Saturday mornings at the theater back in the 50s, that's where I grew up. Oh, sure, sure. No, that totally makes sense. It's like you wanted movies to be escapism and you want to be entertained and not just sit there, okay, looking at my watch, how much longer of this do I have to watch? You know, yeah, that's I like mean, one that, of the worst feelings in the world. Oh, yeah. Is, I mean, you know, right now in Hollywood, everybody's talking about the power of the dog. The power of the dog is a is a big movie right now. It's being touted for best picture. In fact, several of the ads say the best picture of the year. I got news for you. I watched The Power of the Dog, and I I, I must have uh, fallen asleep three times. Uh, you know, wow, really? Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch is a great actor. Don't get me wrong; he probably will be nominated. He may even win Best Actor this year. But the story is so slow. <laughs> it, it it is a very I've seen it. It's a very slow burn. I didn't even really understand what was going on and why this was a movie until like. The last 10 minutes. 
Okay. Yeah. There you go. I mean, Jane Campion is a great director, oh, and I give it's her beautiful. Yeah, beautifully shot, great cinematography. It's a western. It takes place in the West, but it's not really a western. It, no. There may be fields and horses, but there's not a <laughs> it's western. It's not a western. No. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because I felt that way about last year's uh, No Man Land. Also, a little bit. It was just like it just for me. People were raving about it. No Man Land is wonderful. Francis McDormand's awesome in it, and I just sat there. Okay, where's this movie going? How much longer does it go? You know, type thing. Well, and no, it's true. It's true. I mean, there's there's kind of a thing going on that PR and promotion and all of the elegant critics, they embrace pictures, they're supporting the filmmakers, but I think they, sometimes they forget the audience. Is the audience really enjoying this? Uh, but you know, I, I have to say that everybody has their different things. Some people will think power of the dog is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm. I, I actually like sliced bread better. There you go. That's the answer <laughs> right there. My friends. What fictional character would you like to meet the most? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think that um, Aragorn uh, from the Lord of the Rings is oh, one wow. of my favorite heroes. Uh, he's got he's got the uh, he's got the moves, and I, I, I'd like to meet him, hang with him a little bit. You know, sh- share share a pint. Uh, <laughs> you know, it actually would be great to hang out with him and Lego Lossing Gimli, just kind of having, you know, having a, you know, hanging out. It'd be fun. You'd have to keep count with them, though. That's the problem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Gimli will probably drink us all under the table. And, and by the way, it's not that I don't like the Hobbits. The Hobbits are great, but I, I have a feeling that if I got a little too tipsy, I might fall on one of them and kill them. <laughs> okay. There you go. What fictional character would you like to meet the least? Um, Satan is probably up there pretty high. I don't want to go within anywhere, anywhere near of Satan, but uh, a fictional character I would not want to meet. Um, a little Damien in the Omen probably sounds pretty good. Ooh, yeah. 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 Just stay away from him and his dogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Very good point there. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. that still gives me nightmares, those movies. <laughs> Especially, All these years later. especially when Gregory Peck is is, is being skewered by that uh, that iron fence as he's trying to get over it. Ugh. Oh, I know. God. What is your favorite geek word, phrase, quote, or pose? Well, it's uh, it's a real odd one, and it probably makes no sense to anybody listening. But I, you know, the reason I call my podcast Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies is I remember fondly watching Saturday Night at the Movies on NBC. It was the first primetime movie show. And they used to run all the Fox films there. And one of the early Fox films they ran was um, The Desert Rats, Richard Burton, Robert Newton, 1953. It's about the defense of the town of Tobruk during the North African campaign. And it features the voice and narration of Michael Rennie, who played Klaatu in The Day the Earth Stood Still. I always loved Michael Rennie's rather elegant English voice. So during the narration, he talks about a commando raid uh, that the British soldiers are going to do on Rommel's uh, ammunition dump. And he says, let's see if I can quote it properly. 
And thus, on the night of July 9th, began one of the greatest uh, uh, raids of all time. Fifty-four picked men jammed into three captured Italian trucks and prepared themselves for a wild ride. That's kind of a phrase I just kind of like. <laughs> oh, it's a night they would never forget. <laughs> that is awesome. That is really awesome. What is your ideal geek occupation? Oh, what I'm doing right now. I am right in the I am in the in the um headspace of being in the and just in the middle of writing about the movies, trying to get movies made, doing my podcast, doing my classic film reviews. Everything I'm doing right now is my geek job. Thankfully, awesome. thankfully I don't have one of those day jobs where I have to kind of, you know, get through the day to get home to start geeking out. I geek out the minute I walk into the office in the morning. <laughs> That's cool. That is really cool. I like that. What geek occupation would you not like to do, though? What geek occupation would I not like to do? I would not like to be a modern film critic that would have to watch all the modern movies because i think the way i feel about movies right now i would go on strike you know uh for every for every back to the future you get you know nine lousy films that i don't want to talk about i i'm of the opinion that if i don't like the movie i'm not going to write about it no that's totally fair that's totally fair. I think that's what my that, mom used to say, if you can't say something nice about something. Exactly. And then what <laughs> service are you doing the filmmaker? Here's a filmmaker who, however he put it together, got his movie made. And I'm going to tell him that it's crap. What right do I have to say that? So, frankly, I think film critics have to be – I don't exactly know what how they operate. But, uh, I like, for instance, I am a film critic. On Saturdays, I post a classic film review. But I pretty much only post movies that I love. So yeah, totally, totally understand. Promote what that. you love, not what. Yeah, I like exactly. that. Exactly. I like that a lot. That's awesome, dude. All right, Steve, are you ready for your final question in the geek seat? This I'm ready. Is for, this is for all the marbles, so it's coming for you now. All right, Steve, what is your ultimate geek fantasy? Wow. Um, yeah. Well. I would like to write a James Bond movie. Really? Wow. I've been, I've been working toward the, proving my writing chops for, you know, for 30 years. Uh, I think I'm ready. I, I think there are two chances in hell that I'll get that gig and they're both out to lunch. Uh, my relationship with the Bond people is I'm kind of a maverick. You know, I don't write my books with their cooperation. I do everything on my own. I have to collect all the photos myself. I do all the research myself. They don't give me nothing. Uh, although this, you know, it, 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 it's not as um, as uh, turbulent as it used to be. I don't bother them. They don't bother me. And we both love the movies so much. So whatever. But I would like to write a Bond movie. I think uh, I have two partners who would be wonderful co-writers on this. Um I think they could use some new blood. I think the guys who've been writing all of the Daniel Craigs have done great work. I think they need to move on. Well, that was a, You're not hearing an time. argument from there. And yeah. there's a new chapter, right? So, nope, that Why is not? awesome. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. 
Well, Steve, I've got some great news for you, my friend. You've made it through the Geek Seat. Congratulations. Huzzah, huzzah. <laughs> Mr. Mike Gordon, tell the young man what he's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth $68.04. Well, that is a, that is a fine reward for these very challenging questions. Uh, I have to say that in all of the time I've been interviewed, and I've been interviewed for about 40 years, that may have been one of the most challenging run of interviewing that I've ever had. Wow. Wow. Now oh, that, my that, heart that goes that out. Means a, oh, that, wow. no, that, that, that's, that's impressive. Thank you for that. Okay. So I, um, can, I, can I ask a question? Of course. Uh oh. Okay. All right. Turn so, to the tables. Uh -oh. Mike Faber first. Uh oh. All of a sudden, you and Tom Hanks end up on a desert island. He has his volleyball. Of course. Uh, you have a uh, video player, DVD player. You're allowed one DVD you can bring with you to this island. Uh, what movie would you choose? Oof. That's tough because popped into my head when I, when you, as you were saying it, it was 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. But then there's something about watching Pulp Fiction. Every time I watch Pulp Fiction, I see something different. And so I probably would have to say Pulp Fiction. Oh, I think that's a really good choice. Tarantino wears well. I, yeah, I have he does. to say that over the past year, I've probably seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about 11 times. I love oh, that wow. movie so much. That's one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. Yes, me too. Me too. And, and it's funny because it stands out even more because everything else doesn't have a hold a candle to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. I'll tell you, when, when Leo gets out of his pool and goes, finds his, it's flamethrower. I almost fell out of my movie seat. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And oh my god! So many great characters in that movie. It's just, it's amazing. Actually, you know what? I want to do a book about it. And it's funny. I want to approach Tarantino. I'm, I'm working my way toward him. I want to do a book on the making of that movie because I think just the visual images alone would be worth the price of buying that book. Have you read the novelization of it? I did. I just finished it. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Great. It is amazing. And it obviously is only a part one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there's there's, gonna be there's more to it. There has to be more to it. Hell yeah. No, I love that. In fact, um, that whole world, his love of the 60s has inspired me because one of my geek moments right now, a friend of mine loaned me nine seasons of the FBI. Oh, wow. I'm geeking out on watching these 1960s episodes with all these actors who aren't with us anymore. And I actually watched the episode they reproduced in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, the Leo Leo's character was actually originally played by Burt Reynolds. Mm. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. Oh, that is awesome. If you ever need, if you want help with that, I would volunteer because <laughs> uh, that everybody loves so that movie. And I've got to figure out a way to get to Quentin because you know he's a, he's another recluse, very difficult to find. But howdy, Mike. Uh, what is okay. your answer to the film on the desert island question? Uh, ooh, you know, uh, that's a tough one. And no uh, sucking I, up to Tom Hanks either. So, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, not to worry about that. Um, but, uh, you know what, you know, when everybody asks me what my favorite movie is, um, I have to go with the one that really inspired me as a kid and I never, never get tired of watching it. And that's Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Oh, wonderful. Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark by Steven Spielberg and company. And I just like uh, that movie turned me on. And I mean, even more so that Star Wars got me like pump primed. But then when Raiders came, it was like, wow, this is this is the power of cinema. The only and, time uh, only time I've ever gone to the movies and sat through a movie twice. Oh, I, I would have done that if I could have. But I've seen it. I've had the, you know, every time it comes out in a new format, I get it and I watch it immediately. You know, so it's like, you know, it still it, plays. It still plays. I'm, 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 I don't, I'm the last Jones movie was not very good. And they're now doing another one with yeah. uh, Harrison Ford. I, I don't have great hopes for it, but um, it's, uh, you know, the first one and the third one were pretty terrific. I mean, you can't I really like those two. the first one. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I, I uh, the first one just stands out so well. Uh, for, so Forrest, uh, this is where Forrest all get, uh, cashed in ships. A friend of his, a competitor. He was good. He was very, very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another, I can... that's another thing, guys. I miss quotable dialogue. When was oh, the yeah. last time you saw a movie where you could quote dialogue? I mean, it's it's gotten kind of pathetic lately. Um, you know, but, you know, listen, it, it comes in fa- fra- phases. So maybe we'll get some quotable dialogue soon. I just watched the new Dune movie. Nice. Uh, which uh, was visually spectacular, but not any quotable dialogue, unfortunately. No, no, you're right about that. So, well, very cool. It, it's been amazing having you join us. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, where can people go to find out what you're up to and and just check out your stuff online? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited about my podcast. As Mike's heard, I, I have a podcast called Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. We're currently on Spotify. We're working our way to the other distribution points. Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies is also the name of my Facebook page where I do a classic movie review every Saturdays. I have also Facebook pages for the James Bond movie encyclopedia and the Twilight Zone encyclopedia. And then I just have my own Facebook, Steve Rubin. I'm also on LinkedIn. Rubin is R-U-B-I-N. Awesome. Awesome. We will have links to all of those in our show notes. Steve, it's been awesome hanging with you tonight. Thanks so much as always. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Stay safe out there. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with our science segment. Is mankind going to be reaching for the stars in 2022? This is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. I know a lot of us are still busy geeking out over the book of Boba Fett and watching the trailer for the new series, Moon Knight, that's going to be coming to Disney+. Plus. But I want to talk about some of my favorite series that are airing right now on good old-fashioned broadcast television. That's right. There's some great stuff happening on Masterpiece PBS. And I really like all the Masterpiece PBS programming. It's great to see some of the best of British dramas aired on public television. And two ones that are airing right now are Around the World in 80 Days and the second season of All Creatures Great and Small. 
Around the World in 80 Days is the adaptation of the famous novel by Jules Verne and stars the doctor from Doctor Who himself, David Tennant. I'm really enjoying this series. It's cool to see a period drama, which I'm always a sucker for, and especially this idea of globe trotting in all these different locations. But one of the things I also like about this is that they've been able to update the story somewhat so that even though it still has a historical setting, they get into some of the issues and questions that modern audiences may have. It's action-packed. There's some humor. Highly recommend it. And if you're looking for a feel-good show, you can't do any better than All Creatures Great and Small about small-town British veterinarian James Harriet. This show is like drinking a nice warm cup of hot cocoa or tea sitting by a fireplace curled up in a fuzzy blanket. It just makes me feel better about the world. It's gentle. You get to see lots of great animals being taken care of in this quaint town in the countryside of the United Kingdom. It's just such a good show. So if you haven't seen it before, definitely go get caught up on season one and then season two is airing now. Also over on the ESO podcast website, I'm continuing my blog series where I set uh, challenges for myself for the year 2022 to push myself to think a little bit outside the box in terms of what I blog about. So far this year, I've watched a short film, a documentary, and then I recently caught up on a film from 2021 that I wanted to see but just hadn't watched yet, which was the Western The Harder They Fall on Netflix. Hello, I am the monster of the monster sci-fi show. You may be confused, but I am the superior version of the monster, and not just some variant. Much like me, this podcast is burdened with glorious purpose. I'm here to say this podcast delivers timely sci-fi and pop culture news plus movie and TV commentary reviews. In the end, is this not simpler? Subscribe to the Monster Sci-Fi Show. It's sci-fi. From a certain point of view, the Monster Sci-Fi Show is part of the ESO Network. everyone welcome back to our station one it's time for our science segment mr mike should i start the countdown four three two one <laughs> oh yeah we are we are blasting off uh so to speak and we've got our man we've got a full capsule of science folk here starting of course with dr geek himself scott mcgay scott welcome back to the station Ah, uh, thank you it's great to be here and it's great to have you here. Uh, we also have with us Mike Faulkner. Hey, it is a pleasure to be back in orbit with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and Chip Johnson is here, too. How are we doing, everybody? I'm just glad I didn't have to ride up with Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's so much to unpack here. We talked a little bit about it last year because it was hard not to. Um, last year was in, in, the midst of, in the midst of the chaos of a pandemic. Um, you know, there was, there was launches like every other month. It felt like, um, from, uh, we had, 
Blue Origin with, you know, Jeff Bezos' company. We had SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's company. We had Virgin Galactic, which is Richard Branson's company. Like, all these rich guys are shooting off their rockets. Um, Some of them are, like, you know, the criticism is out there. um, (laughs) And the fact that the rockets look very phallic, um, almost all of them, uh, is very telling as well. So that didn't help matters. But look, from a science perspective, I mean, I know it's hard to keep some of the uh, social and political stuff aside there, but but from a science perspective, how do you feel about the events of all of this happening last year? Uh, we'll start with you, Scott. Okay. Uh, well, I'm actually all for it because uh, obviously the more we have different people experiencing space, a lot of different things happen. First off, uh, we, you know, it's one thing to always pick the people with the right stuff and, the, you know, six foot to 180 pounds and be able to do all sorts of stuff. But to, now that we're getting a, a, a different range of individuals experiencing what it would take to at least get into a low Earth orbit, uh, that open, eventually gets data that will come back and open up space for the rest of us. So that in itself is good. I mean, the, the, you know, so yeah, it's a, it's a promo. It's a, it's tourism. In fact, I thought that it was kind of uh, sad that that there's been so much uh, space tourism now that they've changed the rules about what it takes to get your wings, your astronaut wings. And you can't call yourself an astronaut unless you have contributed something towards science and space flight while, while in flight. Uh, if you're just a passenger, you can call yourself a space tourist and they'll give you something, you know, some other like, you know, lesser patch or, you know, insignia for that. But if you want your astronaut uh, wings, you really still have to, you know, do it the old fashioned way. But, but as far as, but as far as all those other companies uh, opening it up, uh, I think that's good. And the other thing that, you know, it's inevitable if there isn't, Political pressure to, call, uh, to get our governments to do what they need to do to, to move forward, then it's all going to be uh, corporations, and whether we like it or not. In fact, uh, China is the only one that's uh, trying to build a new space station. Everybody else is planning to decommission their stuff by 2030 and hand it over to the corporate, you know, uh, built space stations or, or modules or anything else like that. So, yeah, I wish it was, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of give or take. I, I think we're heading a little bit more uh, uh, aliens or Red Dwarf than necessarily Star Trek or 2001 A Space Odyssey. But, you know, we'll see. But I think for me, at least, I, I see the overall good that can come out of it. Okay, cool. Uh, Michael Faulkner, what about you? Yeah, I, I also agree. I, I think it's a, a good thing that these these are happening. Um, yeah, I, I don't see uh, the space tourism industry becoming something that's affordable for me, you know, in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, I, I still think day. it's going to be way out there. Um, but I I like what's happening uh, leading to the future. I mean, the the, the SpaceX, the you know, the Virgin Galactic, all that kind of stuff is is leading into getting us back to the moon and getting us to Mars. There, all those those private industry uh, steps forward are actually 
going hand in hand with NASA to get us back up there. And like, you know, like Scott was saying, we sometimes don't have the the motivation, you know, politically or, or something else to, to make sure we keep pushing the boundaries of exploration. Uh, so if, if somebody else is going to step up and do that and help us to get there, I'm all for that. You know, I, even though it is a vanity project, I completely understand that. I mean, putting Shatner in space was, was a complete vanity thing, you know, but it, it also kind of helps to keep us moving forward with scientific progress. Chip. I think I'm just going to kind of say the same thing as everybody else is saying. Yeah. Ideally, yes, there, you know, there's the aspect of it being kind of self-indulgent, but at the same time, I mean, James Cameron self-indulgence has led to how many discoveries in the deep sea. So, you know, there's a certain amount of, there is a certain argument to be made that these are the guys with the income to do it. So if we're, if this is the only way we're going to get people to go out into space, I mean, it's the last real unexplored area we have on earth that we could, so that'd be very interested to see kind of how they, maybe what that turns into. I kind of, I have to go down with uh, what Dr. Geek was saying about, you know, the, there is an interesting idea of sending people who are maybe not six foot to, you know, 180 pounds out in space. What could that do? Mm. Well, we're probably going to see like the first women on the moon, probably within the next 10 years, you're going to see, you know, minorities, or you're going to see people from other nations up on the moon too. And it's going to be amazing to see all this happening and that's the cool thing about it we were talking about it right before we went on the air that you know just this last week they announced that they're going to be building a movie studio in orbit and how cool is that you know we might get a real thanos hitting there you know you just <laughs> never know so yeah that's oh, right go ahead no, I was just going to then say, and it's just, it's awesome. You know, I have friends of mine who are actually working for SpaceX down in Brownsville in Texas. And they tell me the things going on there and the things we're going to see with the next year is go, are going to blow our minds. We're going to see SpaceX launches from there probably at least two or three times a month. It's it's just going to be happening more and more, uh, you know. And and look, I mean, the the headlines and and a lot of the commentary, you know, it's it's acting like these guys, these three guys in particular, are just so wealthy. They're just shooting up their their rockets just to have a, little, a lot of fun, and because they can and they can afford it. There's these guys are businessmen. Uh, they're not just doing it, you know, just to just because they can. Um, you know, they're doing it with other things in mind. Now, granted, they're doing it for business reasons. Um, and there is a planet place. I know that, you know, I, I, you know, watching the, it's a highly promotional piece, you know, by Amazon, but, you know, I did watch the Shatner in space thing and, you know, it's fun to watch, you know, to, to put Shatner in space. But on the other hand, you know, the reason, the thing that, that Jeff Bezos uses to sell Shatner on the idea is that, you know, the plan is, is that to take businesses and companies and, you know, that are polluting the planet and move them into space so that they're polluting the, polluting the outer space and pissing off aliens. And that's, if you want alien invasion, that's how you get alien invasion. Um, 
But I mean, that's the grand scope of it. It's not just to like go up on a joyride for, you know, a day or an afternoon. This is, uh, they're thinking long term. And this is just, these are practice so that they're learning on each flight, like what they can and cannot do. And, and like Mike said, they're planning on opening a studio there. They're planning on putting like, you know, actually businesses up there. And, you know, we, we might get that. Well, I don't know if we'll see, be alive to see it, but we're actually moving towards that future that we all thought we were going to get 30 years ago, right? Yeah, the 2001 of Space Odyssey Pan Am flight to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. I'd exactly. Have to, I have to say we're probably going to be closer to what was it, Elysium, where there's just going to be the really fancy space station that you just get hopped up to <laughs> and you can go oh. up there for six months. But, you know, you mentioned the Pan Am flight, right? Well, mm-hmm. Radium... What uh, is building a space plane that looks very much like the uh, Pan Am Starliner, uh, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, I was uh, in prep for today. I was reading the article about it, and the person who did it must be young, you know, almost because it's, they, the way they wrote about it was like no one's ever thought about making it look like a plane before, and you know, <laughs> and, and the importance of wings. And did you know that it could go up and down and without, you know? And you're like, oh my gosh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, 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 uh, I was looking for more uh, hard data about the space plane, and all I could get was something that I could have guessed from just looking at it. Uh, So, but, you know, what's nice about that, too, is uh, hopefully they want to have a 48-hour turnaround, uh, which will be big as far as repeated launches and, and all that sort of stuff, and the, there was one phrase in the article that gave me pause. The the, the company um, CEO said that they want to give they want to eventually get to the point where space travel is as innocuous as uh, jet travel. And I know that that's sort of how we view it in science fiction. But every time we get too comfortable, something happens, and and it reminds us all that this is still a highly risky business. Right, you know, we, we were we were chugging along with the space shuttle program. Finally, had a, a teacher in space. Everything was moving forward, and then it not only did it stop the program for a long time to figure out what went wrong, but it literally sucked the heart out of, of the manned space program for NASA for the longest time. You know, and it's- oh, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that because like two months before the space shuttle blew up, Time Magazine put out an ep- an issue and it says you know our future in space and there is a book out there and I've lent it to Mike Faulkner it's called the Star Trek Space Flight Continuum and it has man's walking through you know starting with the with uh, Sputnik all the way through the era of the Enterprise but going year by year mm-hmm. and it is an amazing book if you could ever find it and I felt like we were headed that way. Oh yeah, we, we were, were on actually, target. We were on target for that, and then the space shuttle blew up, and funding dried up, and everyone's attitude: "Oh, space is dangerous," and everything. No so, doubt. So, so, so was so was taking a cattle train across the United States to you know on the Oregon Trail, but you know we still did it, right. or we. Cl- and you know it's the same thing with going to space. It's dangerous. It's it's, uh, it's legally an ultra hazardous activity. And exactly, as long exactly. as we remember that, so that when accidents happen, we pick up and don't have a thirty year drop off. You know that's the thing. You, you have to learn exactly. from it and pick up from it. 
Right. Hey, there's I, a there's a great TV show on Apple TV, and it's called For All Mankind, and it's where I had always hoped the space program would have gone. And it's a great what if story. And if you haven't seen it, folks, it's definitely worth checking out. They actually, the final scene of season two, spoilers if you haven't seen it yet, is they show man, uh, an astronaut on Mars in 1995. I'm not going to tell you how they got there, but it's it's a, a great, great story. It's a TARDIS. It's a great, great story if you get a chance of it, you know. And you know, um, there's wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. It's great. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, um, all the th- th- talk of danger. You know, I'm, and even while I was watching the documentary Shatner in Space, I kept thinking of one of my favorite Kirk lines, which is "Risk is our business," right? Like, like it's it's like it's it's like that's what you know we need. We we choose to take these challenges because you know we can, um, and and they are challenges. Um, so all of that happened last year. Now, granted, the timing was pretty horrible because it was all all these guys were doing it, all these companies were doing it uh, during a global pandemic when so many people were suffering and everything. Like that. So yeah, bad timing on that. But we're moving fo as we're moving forward into this year and and beyond. Um, what do we have to look for? What's next? Um, because. You know, obviously they're they're going to continue to like you know do the tourism, uh, if you will. Um, but where is that leading? What's the next step, and when do we see that? Do we see that this year, Scott? Um, actually, it's going to be a little bit more of the same. I think uh, you know <laughs> what's going to happen is as I can as I can see what's going on is NASA is slowly but surely uh, going to. Uh, work with Artemis and and work with its plan to, to eventually get back to the moon and and ever so slowly ever very little inch uh, but they're, they're more worried about infrastructure uh, and of, about how to make all that happen and it's 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 funny it's like you know we've done it it shouldn't take this long to get back but there's something about the bureaucracy of, of NASA that I don't know you know they don't have necessarily have the people in there that have always had the goal of being pro manned spaceflight, you know, not necessarily after Challenger, right? So it's so that, you know, what you're, what you see coming from NASA is talking about, you know, moving more telescopes into better orbits and better technology to support science uh, back at home. And, you know, oh, the, the manned spaceflight program. Yeah. We've recruited, you know, some potential candidates to be astronauts, some, uh, some of them are women, you know, but, you know, don't hold this to any particular hard date. You know, we, we want to say 10 years, but we've been saying 10 years for 30 years. So that, that marker keeps moving a little bit. We, Where, I'm sorry, uh, you're saying that in that, and I think you're, is, is that what, um, what, where does Space Force fit into this? Okay, it's so, hard, it's so hard for me to say that out loud without. Um, <laughs> so Space Force, so Space Force, oh, isn't, that, is, isn't that that horrible sitcom on Netflix? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so Space Force it, it, it actually doesn't because what it uh, what it has been doing is they're taking over stuff that the Air Force uh, or other branches of the military have already been doing, and then they've been coalesced now under the Space Force. So there is a, a, and right now it's a new branch of the military that 
is got a, a, a new budget and not a lot of people connected to it. So you're going to, for as far, as far as space sports goes, you're going to see a lot more recruitment for that and a lot of um, shifting of responsibilities. So, you know, projects that were maybe partly Navy, partly Air Force are now going to be united under the Space Force and stuff like that. But it's stuff that they were already kind of, it's already been done. There's no new projects that are going to get in the way of getting to the moon. You know, that's all a separate project of NASA. And whether or not, uh, whether or not uh, Space Force gets involved and puts a, a weapons locker on the moon, well, uh, you know, who knows? That's that, that's a, that's a that, that's from the, the really bad uh, show on Netflix. Uh, but it, it it is interesting that they came up at the same time uh, as this uh, desire to to try to keep you know dangling the moon in front of us. I just I'm frustrated by it because I spent all day today looking for something, anything, just a morsel that says you know here's the next little nugget that, you know, what is, what, what is actually stopping us, you know, from, you know, from landing there. And the truth is we could, we could get there, you know, we have the ability to do it now, but they don't know what to do once you do. Cause that, because the moment you land on the moon, everyone's like, yeah, 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 Mars. And nobody's ready, quite ready to make that leap to go from the moon to Mars. So I think what's going to happen is, they're going to get all their ducks in a row and be ready for a good idea of what they're going to do once they get to the moon, because no one's going to sit there and be happy with that. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. We, you yeah. also, sorry, I was going to say, you also have to, sorry, the thing I would say with Scott is part of why, you know, you're talking about, well, we've been there before. Why can't we go back? I think the thing we have to all remember somewhat is that when we went, uh, it, you know, the, we're talking about NASA as a government organization and why are these private businesses getting up there so much faster and kind of why are they able to do it? And it's because when NASA was really big, it was also one of the highest points of the cold war and nothing makes a government spend money and get equipment and motivation faster than giving them somebody else to beat. You know, mm-hmm. and there's, there's sort of a military aspect that's always been tied to NASA, but there is a, you know, you sort of look at also when Challenger stopped was we'd already beaten the Russians to the moon. There really wasn't a competition anymore was also kind of another reason. I think like when Challenger happened, we didn't have a reason then to turn around and have that like, okay, well now we've got to beat the Russians still. So we weren't able. So that's part of why I think NASA is also having huge trouble is we don't really have a world where you can kind of point at China and go, okay, well we got to beat China to Mars. Like it doesn't well. Wait now, though, till India, China, and other countries now start putting space stations up or put other uh, – do small outposts on the moon. And the United States is not the first ones to do it mm. anymore. And then you're going to see – all these senators going, hey, we got to throw all this money in it because, you know, America's first, you know, blah, 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 USA. The other, um, the other thing, you my question. Really, oh, sorry, Mike, go ahead. I was going to say, the other thing you really got to think about, too, is is the moonshot that we took as as a country, that, that technology and everything, that occurred 50 to 70 years ago, like five to wow. seven decades ago. And wow. it was with the technology you find in a, in a common cell phone today, right? So... It's the cell phones are more powerful, yeah, dude. Yeah. So, so what I'm what I'm looking at there is is yeah, it's taken us forever to get there, but we are also making the advances to make sure we do it safely because complacency is the killer here. 
And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're 70 years down the road from when we were, de- when we were developing all this, we also got to take into consideration all the technological advances. And then what do we do once we get there is, is also a valid point, but we don't want to just throw people up there and be like, okay, hope you survive. <laughs> you know? well, well, See ya. <laughs> that's, that's the thing I was going to say. It's like, I mean, the moon is great and everything to go, to be able to go to the moon and build a station and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, we went there 50 years ago and we brought back some rocks and it was cool, but there wasn't anything compelling for us to be like, we need to go back. Like the food was awesome. Like there's nothing like up there, like, uh, you know, I mean, research wise, of course we learned and, and from the other planets like Mars and everything, obviously there's a lot more mystery there and we need to explore that, but there, there doesn't seem to be, you know, uh, I think most of the, the, uh, the, companies that are doing this the three that sort of launched last year and everything they seem to be having plans of of making everything commercial but i don't hear them talking about like going to the moon or going to planets or anything like that because it's in, they don't i don't think they can wrap their head around what's in it for them commercially is well, that fair you know, Elon Musk has full plans for a moon base for then moving on to a Mars base, doing a space station around the moon as a launch facility for other ships. And, oh, they're, they've got full plans for it. And they're even exploring craters to be able to put bases in um, to help shield from radiation and even, you know, possible even underground caves that they've been exploring on the moon to do all this stuff. So what you're telling me is that the reason to go to moon, the, the reason to go to the moon is to build a place so that we can launch and go other places. That's exactly yeah. it. That's exactly yes. it. So, so yeah, so we're putting a quick trip on there, like, right? Pretty, like, yeah, basically. <laughs> no, I'll, no, dude. A Bucky's. Come on, better big. <laughs> I mean, a lot of them. A lot of these guys also aren't they looking into like stations as an objective? And I think that's something that I know. I'm I hear sure stations NASA, talk about more than yeah. NASA's been talking about for years because realistically, from a functional standpoint, if you're not looking, you know, once you get past about Mars, we start getting into issues of what happens to this people living on this ship for a long time. And, you know, so if you, you know, there's a, the scientific aspect that if you want to send somebody to Jupiter, then you have to know what's going to happen. If you put a person in space for, you know, 10 months, a year, what's mm-hmm. that going to do to them? And also, you know, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, the earth only has so much space and, you know, people got to go right. somewhere. Right. So right. a lot of stations are also have been talked about as a way to deal with long term getting dealing with population control and maybe a way to kind of compensate. And for all my anime nerds, yes, Gundam did predict this in the 70s. Anyway. And and as we are, you know, depleting continually deple- depleting the resources here, we need to find some other place that's got some resources that we can use. We'll wait till they start the wait till they start mining the asteroid belt. Yeah. And that's gonna be happening within the next hundred years. We're going to have, you know, minerals and you know because these they're already finding when they send these you know, these robots out there of finding how rich these asteroids are. And some of these asteroids are the same size as the moon. And, you know, there's huge planetoids and such that they're going to be going to. And it's, it's just amazing what, you know, kind of resources. So maybe that they'll stop 
drilling here and going out there. But the, the pro, the problem right now in getting out there is the weight issue with bringing things in because it's very expensive right now to do that. But that's also another reason why we need to, why they're planning on establishing a base on the moon on Mars to bring the materials in to be able to have mining facility, not mining, but processing facilities on these planets or even in on space stations to be able to bring it back to earth. I mean, if you think we have supply chain problems now, yeah, just wait, <laughs> just, just wait for it. Because I mean, okay. that's part of the, it, there's, there's an image of like spaceships, like the ships docked at like New York Harbor. There's right. an image of like the next pandemic heads and there's like 12 spaceships just docked <laughs> at the moon. I'm just picturing myself on the moon with my cell phone going, I'm trying to get a signal. I'm trying to get a signal. (laughs) No, no, come on. That would have the best bars. You're like 10 feet from the nearest satellite. You'd have the great, you'd have great. (laughs) uh, Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? (laughs) The other thing to think about that lunar base too is, is the biology aspect. And that is, you know, it takes nine months to get from give or take to get from earth to, to Mars under the current, uh, projections, and, but that's that's throwing astronauts for long term travel outside of the protection of of the the radiations around the planet, right? Outside the the Van Allen belts, is that right? Uh, so it's you know what what happens to to people when they're in space for a long period of time? We don't know because we've only had people out there for like a week and then brought them back. And, uh, and what we do know is that I saw a study today that says that uh, astronauts can lose up to 54% of the red blood cells. Yeah. Um, That's something they have, they're working on trying to figure out ways to replicate or to be able to combat that because that's a major issue, especially on deep space flying. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, other than the moon, mankind has not made it, you know, past that. We haven't seen what the results of somebody going out to Mars is or even going past the moon or even to an asteroid or to a comet. And it's just, you know, we don't know what somebody's going to be. You know, they haven't, you know, you know, in the movies you see, you know, oh, put them in suspended animation and, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff or deep freeze. The only person who's made it through that is Walt Disney. So, you know, it's <laughs> Not just... Yet. <laughs> not yet. We gotta we gotta thaw him out. Um, it's gone one way, not the other. <laughs> exactly. You, you can um, do an entire textbook on the relativistic physics of all that. Anyway. Yeah. yeah I. Uh, yeah, because I mean, I know people who have gotten physically um, unable to handle the move from, say, Florida to Denver. If they move to Denver, they realize, oh my God, I'm up, you know, in this elevation and this elevation, and I'm. My my body's not doing the same thing that it was doing when I was in Florida, and I have to leave. Like there's people I know that you know had to leave Denver because they could they couldn't handle it. So I can only imagine what that would be like if you're going to you know going to space. Um, Talk about a nosebleed, jeez. So so Mike Wagner, I'm going to point this to you now. Uh, so what do you want to see next? What is the next step that do you are you seeing what you want to see next? I. With everything that's on the table, I, th- I think I am seeing what I want to see. You know, we, we, were, we talked a lot about Artemis. We talked a lot about the R and D that's going into that, and, and trying to get uh, to get man back to the moon, and then try to get beyond that in exploration. Um, we're still doing, uh, you know, launching rovers and and doing flybys of, of you know moons and stuff like that. I mean, we're we're uh, looking at sending another another rover here. I think it's in the next next year or so. 
the Ro- Rosalind Franklin rover is going to Mars. Um, so just, you know, as another, I think it's with the, uh, the European, uh, space agency, they're, they're, you know, working to, to get back out there and, and do more exploration. Um, you're also looking at, um, <laughs> we, we tend to think that rockets are just a, you know, a, a known quantity in, in science and technology, but they, they keep evolving and there's still more companies out there who are, are looking for better ways to launch rockets into, into orbit. Um, Did, when yeah. I saw the uh, when I saw the Shatner thing, and I saw that the the launching rocket returned back to Earth safely, I was like, it blew my mind. I yeah. was like, I that's amazing. It's been amazing. The first time I saw SpaceX do it, like what three years ago, four years ago, it was amazing. It looked like something out of Buck Rogers. Yeah. you know, having it, you know, having the rocket just land right there, straight up, and it was just like, like ready to go again. And, yep. I, and I know, I know the Artemis plans right now don't have have that built in. That's not a reusable system, except for the the one reentry vehicle that's going to come back to Earth. I I want to see, um, you know, that technology of reusable boosters and everything else come to this kind of program. You know, as, as we're going forward, because uh, it it does seem like an awfully big waste just to you know to shoot a rocket up there and they're like, okay, well, ninety percent of that's not coming back. <laughs> you know, well, right. what about? That experimental rocket that is go is doing the spinning to shoot it out into orbit. You've you've seen the uh, the thing. It's like a, a it circles around and then it shoots it out. It as it gets to a certain speed and then shoots it out to hit velocity into orbit. I just wouldn't want to be the guy in the spinning space shuttle. Like that'd be like the worst tilt of world in the entire world. <laughs> and then you get shot up, <laughs> and then you have G forces shooting. <laughs> exactly. You can pay for the ride. I'm sure you get somebody to sign up for it. Oh, I'm sure. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it would be. It would. Be, it's interesting to see. But you know. But then you have not just human exploration, and we have robot. And, but we have, you know, basically James Webb. Actually, as of today, of this recording. It reached its a million miles away from Earth. It's not in orbit around Earth. It's in orbit around the sun. Mm. It's amazing. And, you know, we're not, we haven't seen true images yet from it, but it's going to be awesome when we finally do because you don't have interference from Earth, basically. Yeah. And, and everything. And, and the idea of looking back to the origins of the universe just, it's still baffles i mean i'm a science guy and i'm still like what (laughs) no and it's it's gonna be awesome and you know there's even plans i know they are talking about and i've seen the plans actually of them putting radio telescopes on the dark side of the moon also and a, a series of them because that's facing away also again facing away from the earth you don't have the glow of the sun interfering and some of the imagery you would get from that would be just amazing. Less lens flare. Is that what you're talking? Exactly. Exactly. JJ Abrams would hate it. (laughs) That's that's where I was going. Good job. Uh, Chip, what about Uh, you? I've been working with you so long. I know where you're going. What? uh, Yeah, I'll serve them up. You just uh, launch them out. Um, uh, Chip, um, what about you? What is, are you, are you happy with everything you've seen? Is there something missing from what you're seeing going forward? I do think that, it, you know, kind of, I have to keep reminding myself that we are essentially dealing with, again, kind of doing space history. Yes, the technology is greater, but for these guys, we're essentially looking at the Mercury stage of the space travel, where these guys are still kind of figuring out, 
okay, we know, you know, long-term, but they're kind of figuring out, okay, how do we fire these off? How do we get them back? How do we do all this safely? So I think, yeah, I'd like, you know, I do think, like we said, there's some real world uh, practical aspects that I'd like to see kind of explored. I do actually, I'm kind of, again, a big, personally, I do kind of like rovers because it's, you know, again, uh, for those of you from the 90s, as long as nobody screws up the math, you can get a lot of really good information out of them and you don't have to worry about strapping somebody's butt to a Roman candle. You know, you can kind of get a lot more info and there's some, we've, I mean, look what we got out of the Mars rover and the amount of information. So I'm hoping to see kind of also more with rovers and using them for straight scientific research and some of that aspect too. The thing you mentioned about, uh, you know, the danger aspect we were talking about earlier and what kind of, I mean, I would imagine this process is going to have to evolve as well as this goes on, but um, you know, there's already been with some of the launches that we got, particularly with uh, the Virgin Galactic one, there was, you know, discrepancies about like whether or not it went off course and all that and whether or not it was uh, safe to do, whether it should have been aborted or whatever. Um, you know, the FAA has to regulate all this, right? Like, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, from the things that I've seen so far, it seems like a lot of these companies are just sort of self-regulating whether or not they're going to launch or not. Like, oh, I think it's safe. It should be safe, right? Whatever. Or is, you know, how much of a presence does the FAA have on that as far as making sure that they are they are adhering I, to some sort of rules? Oh, that's I, a fascinating I, question. Um <laughs> <laughs> you want you, you want the thank you. You want the actual answer? Yeah, I was gonna say, do you want the honest answer or the? Uh, <laughs> yeah, do you want the answer? answer? Right. The, the, the lawyer in the room is telling you, unfortunately, um, they're self-regulating. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. in order for a super, uh, in order for a third party to be able to uh, oversee your work, in order to make sure that it's going to go the the green light, they have to understand the work. And the FAA is great for things like private aviation and commercial aviation and integrating that with, you know, military aviation. But as far as like having like a a government oversight of uh, pre-launch, something like that. I mean, there's actually there's going to be a need for it, you know, but until this until the systems are locked down and it's and, and it becomes Here's our punch list, and we'll and we hold ourselves to a certain standard. Uh, I mean, you know, but, but it, at the moment, I don't think the FAA has. Uh, they're the they're the logical agency, but I don't think there's anybody there ready to to sit there and go, wait, wait, wait. I'm now the expert to be able to do that. Well, exactly, and that's what's happening a lot with SpaceX because SpaceX is supposed is trying to do things legitly through the FAA and, you know, with their launches, especially the super heavy rocket, um, looking to push it to, to do testing, to take it into orbit and the FAA they're finding isn't, doesn't have a clue on half the technologies that SpaceX is putting out there and wanting to do for their launches. And they're used to doing it the old way. And SpaceX has all this newer technology and going back and forth. And it's delayed the the testing of their super heavy rocket, which is the largest rocket ever 
built by man to go to to, to take flight to orbit and it's was originally supposed to go off in September. It still hasn't to this day, and it's almost the as of the recording dates end of January. And right now, they're saying it might not be till March because of FAA incompetence. I mean, to go further with Mike's question, really, I mean, you know, there are times where the FAA works with people that are building experimental aircraft, right? And you know, from and building things from kits, and there's there's all sorts of a review for that or a process from that, because ultimately if somebody's trying to make a new plane, it's a plane, right? Uh, and, and stuff like that. But with this new technology, the, it, the problem we're having is the people that are creating it are creating the standards that are going to rubber stamp back. And 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 uh, we saw a little bit of that with uh, the, 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 the Max air, uh, airplanes, right? The, the company that built it was also reviewing to make sure it was safe. And uh, and that's and ultimately that's what's happening here, and I don't know what it ultimately will take uh, for it, but you know it, it probably be a new a new agency completely, right? Um, probably at some point, maybe maybe this is where the space uh, force gets involved. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's at some point you you want to make sure you have somebody else check your work. I think it'll probably end up like the nuclear industry is right now, where where the nuclear industry, you know, you have a certain level of self regulation that the plants and the the corporations can do, but ultimately the, the the responsibility lies with the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, where they send everything up to them, and you've got a bank of experts there, you've got a whole ton of inspectors and everything else there, who are then going to say, okay, this makes sense. Wait, this part right here doesn't make sense. Tell me more about this, and they won't approve it for use until they get all their questions answered. And it may be something along those lines for, for the space side of the house to have like an NRC kind of a situation where, you know, Congress or whoever says you take care of it, as long as you don't blow anything up, it will be fine. I'm guessing that I'm guessing that these companies are, are, you know, creating proprietary um, equipment um, and devices that uh, they're using and they don't want that, you know, to be public knowledge. So uh, that is, you know, because it, they're, they're maintaining their, you know, corporate identities, their brands, et cetera, their copyrights, their IPs, but they're also like, they're in a race because they're all in a race with each other. Right. They're, I mean, I don't, they're, I don't, I haven't gotten the impression that these three guys are, or companies are sharing information. It's, it's kind oh, of the God. wild west right now with it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's uh, so many companies doing, like you said earlier, there's so many companies. Oh, there's even doing more. So, yeah, we can't even. You know, the you can't even count on a dozen hands how many companies are out there building technologies or doing. We have a company right here in Alpharetta that is a true company that is researching for space mining, and it's just it's amazing. You know, I actually interviewed there about six months ago, so I understand that, and it's. It's amazing what the industry is coming up with. And space is, like we said, the Wild West. And it's, it's, it's going to be the Wild West until someone tames it. And you have so many other countries now. It, it used to be, like you said, just the U.S. and Russia. Now it's so many other countries and agencies that are shooting things up daily. 
One of the big issues they're going to have, though, is space junk, and that has to be addressed also. Yeah, and what, you know, I mean, and I think also, I mean, the FAA is obviously a federal um, agency that supplies only to, like, you know, America, right? Like, this is becoming a worldwide thing, and the, the planet's getting a lot smaller because of all of this, right? Oh, very much so. But if you think about it, what was it? Um, just about less than a month ago, we had a piece of a Chinese rocket that they didn't know that it was going, it was going to crash somewhere on the earth. It was too big to burn up in orbit and they didn't know where it was going to hit. So it could have landed in anyone's backyard, literally. And it's going to be, that's going to become more and more of an issue as more people stick, throw stuff up there. Lawsuits abound. Exactly. The, uh, um, all right. So getting ready to wrap it up uh, a little bit, but I only hear some, you know, thoughts about like, so, we, you know, where we think, what, well, first of all, what is the next thing? Cause Mike, you mentioned there's a launch probably maybe going to be happening in March. Is that the soonest thing that we have to look forward to? Or what else do we have to look forward to specifically this year? Scott? Yes, uh, we're going to be having uh, the, the launch in March, but I think the, the next uh, thing is going to be uh, SpaceX with their next set of tests. I think that's what's going to happen. But uh, I, um, I couldn't find anything else that was definitive on the schedule. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, Bezos goes up whenever Bezos feels like he's going to shoot his giant Viagra rocket into space. And it's just... You know, he's, he does it. It almost seems like, you know, Bezos is doing it for publicity, but it's getting it out there. You know, I did see that there was a, um, a NASA article saying that they really do want to recruit more people, uh, and stuff like that. And I actually came across a company that's trying to find a way for people with disabilities, uh, to have a, a role in space. Uh, I'm trying to, to uh, look, uh, reach out to them and, and find out some more information about that. Uh, so for maybe something uh, for the ESO network to, to talk about at some, other, at some other point. But I think that's that would be the next step as far as, well, I'm waiting for governments and corporations to create my future. Uh, you know, there's opportunities out there to get involved in some way, either through advocacy or just pure interest. Uh, and, you know, there's, you know, like I said, Mike, you actually know these people who work at SpaceX. I mean, how cool is that? There's, there's gotta be, there's, there's gotta be a way for the common people to, to feel like they're involved. Otherwise it's a rich man's game or it's corporations or it's, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just turned 50. I would like to actually, you know, see us get past the moon before I die. <laughs> that's what I want to see. And I think it's just going to take all of us one way or another, each taking one little tiny step, you know? And, and, and well, a couple of things with what you said, a, that uh, I would imagine that, you know, for NASA to recruit now that these other companies are, you know, so many other companies are involved in this race, it's probably more difficult to get uh, people because, you know, that that pay scale is not quite the same as as corporate millions, right. Right? right? 
Well, exactly. And the thing is, you know, like Judy's niece, Hannah, is about to go into her doctorate program in physics. And, you know, we've asked her, you know, are you going to go work for NASA? She says, no, NASA doesn't pay enough. She's going to go work for SpaceX or, you know, you know, blue, whatever it's called, Jeff Bezos company, you know, because they are the growing technologies and they pay more. And that's where a lot of the scientists are going. I just don't want to see NASA become like the post office of of the space race, you know, like there's other shipping, you know, there's corporate shipping, which is a lot better and more reliable than the post office. And I don't want to see NASA be getting, get into that sort of situation. Nope. Agreed completely. And that's what's, that's looking that could happen. You know, the whole issue with, uh, like the space suits and you know that nasa was creating these modern spacesuits and then spacex comes out with these ultra modern looking ones that you know blow away what nasa had put all these millions of dollars into and with prototypes and it's just and it's like i don't want to see nasa be outdated and you know in private industry do it you know absolutely uh, Michael Faulkner, what about you? Your the last words on what, what we're going to see maybe or what you're looking forward to this year? Yeah, I think we've, we've covered a lot of it. I'm definitely looking forward to the Artemis tests. I'm looking forward to the continued R&D for um, you know, a lot of these, these rockets that are going up and trying to figure out what the path forward looks like. Uh, I'm, I'm really actually excited about, about the, the, the crop of astronauts that are coming along. So, I mean, we're already training the astronauts who are going to go to Mars. So, um, yeah, I want to, I want to see, you know, NASA continue to at least progress forward on that of like, okay, we're, we're, we're developing all these, you know, these programs to help train all these people up so we can, we have a, a stable of people to go. Um, and I, I think one of the things that we can also do, you know, a lot of the excitement for the space race came from just people being, you know, being able to read about it and to understand what was going on and kind of the word of mouth, the buzz. I think things like what we're doing right now will help to, to kind of keep that moving, you know, like telling people stuff is happening, you know, you should do some research into it. Um, and I, I'm really excited about the, the next generation of scientists who are coming up through, through colleges and, and universities and, you know, going into scientific programs so that they can try to, become rocket scientists, which is, you know, we, we look, we look at it in our generation. We're like, uh, oh, rocket scientists. Those are, you know, those, those are, are really kind of the elite. And it's like, well, we need a lot more of them. So if you have an interest in it, you know, pursue those dreams, go find them. You know, the, the test pilots are the ones who, who, you know, pilot these things into space, but the people actually get them off the ground are the, the engineers and the scientists behind it that are doing the, you know, the calculations on the chalkboard, you know, and we, we need more of those people. And, and, uh, you know, something that I was uh, a little leery about is that, you know, as far as the, uh, uh, the Bezos rocket goes, it's, it's really like, it's all the pilot is the computer. Like it's all computer, like it's all piloted out. I mean, you have manned, uh, folks in there that are managing the programming, but it's not like you have a, you know, a pilot, so, so to speak, you know, it's like, it's all kind of, it's like those automated cars. It's like, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yeah. I, I ha- had a lot of thoughts about that as I was watching those launches. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so, so what happens if something goes wrong? Is there somebody who's actually, you know, trained to push the right buttons or is it all just, okay, we're really on, on the people sitting down in Texas to, <laughs> to make a call. <laughs> exactly. You it's know? like, okay, just put your, 
Put your head between your knees and, you know. Uh, Chip, what about you? Like, so, um, and, you know, you're at the level too where, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing this from, you know, a teacher's point of view and, and kids and the next generation and everything like that. Are they excited about the space races things going on? Because the, the feeling I'm getting is that a lot of people are just thinking it's, it's a bunch of rich people doing this and it's not really that exciting and worth their time. What do you, what do you see? I think honestly, you probably got a needle on it. The kids that are aware of it, I, in my experience, the ones that the kids that are very much aware of what's going on are the kids that you would expect to know that because they're the younger versions of all of us. They're the kids who are into the sciences. They're into, you know, space. And so they're really kind of, I think a lot of the kids, it's kind of like when we used to watch, you know, like even, you know, I can remember when it was space launches, by the time you got to like the eighties and nineties, where it was, it was something kind of cool, but the, you know, I do think that um, you're kind of, there's some argument about mystery and yeah, some of that is until we get to a point where um, it is either way more common or way less common. I think you're going to kind of have that issue. I think we have to, you know, there is the there is the issue for a lot of them of the fact of like, oh, this is a bunch of rich guys having fun. And until we can come up with some sort of middle ground where and maybe it is just these keep going and going and going and going and going and going until there's so many companies and it's gotten so inexpensive that you can have more experimental aspect to it and you can kind of get back into what we have with airplanes in a way. And that you kind of, it's a catch 22. This is where the money comes from, but it does feel, you know, you can have this argument of self-indulgence. It's not a great place, but it's what we've got. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like the days when I was growing up and and even a few generations after me where when, you know, you were young, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? One of your first answers was an astronaut. And, and I don't think that's been a case for probably two decades now. I doubt that's even on their radar, but hopefully it is now. Like, you know, um, it can be, it's amazing to me that to think that that is a legit option now, uh, that people can go into space because there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. Mike, what about you? You got any last words about, um, um, what were you, you're looking forward to seeing this, this year? Like everybody else, I'm looking forward to see the innovations, the continuation of, you know, the space program and watching to see what happens like with Artemis, what happens with um, looking at SpaceX and looking at, you know, even we haven't even brought up Richard Branson's company, you know, Virgin Galactic and, you know, items of things that they're doing. And just also looking at, you know, China is building a brand new space station and bit by bit up and it's going to hopefully, you know, we'll see more, you know, items happening up with that. And then Russia is supposed to be pulling out of the International Space Station and probably going to do their own thing. And more and more countries are going to do it. I still want to see the giant wheel in space. That's what I want to see with artificial gravity. And, you know, I, I've been since 2001, I've been looking forward to seeing that happen. And, you know, I'm hoping we're getting closer to seeing that, you know, the space hotels and the space stations and the movie studios and all this other thing. 
wait till Starbucks opens up there. It's going to be great, you know. So you know, can you imagine what your or thing of coffee is going to be costing then? It's just going to be a ton of fun to see. And you know, over the last year, when we saw, you know, SpaceX doing all their testing and seeing all the different rocket modules landing, and you know, being taking off and then landing some of them not so as so successful as others but it was amazing to see the rockets go up and then come down and turn horse you know go horizontal and then turn itself vertical right at the last minute to land was just something you would never think of seeing other than in star trek or something or in a movie and we're seeing it in real life and this is what we're going to get and we're going to get technologies on earth that are coming or coming out of the space programs. That's what happened in the 60s and 70s from it. And we're seeing to this day, you know, more and more, you know, items come from that. And we're going to see the same thing with the technologies they're putting into spacecraft. We're going to see, you know, you know, happen with, you know, cars and other things, phones, computers. We can't even imagine what we're going to see. It's going to be pretty amazing. The only the only problem I have with hoping that you know things get to like to, like using two thousand one as a template for where we can go and what we can see is that two thousand one as a movie for a lot of those uh, folks on that station did not end well. So I just want to make sure that we don't use that as a complete lesson on 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 where to go. But no, on, um, on the spaceship it didn't end up, end well. On the space <laughs> station they were fine. <laughs> the. Uh, uh, look, I, I think um, I think one thing that probably came out of all this uh, that, uh, you know, especially with Shatner going up and everything is that uh, all the companies are now bidding for to try to get to see who's going to get who's going to be the first one to put Patrick Stewart up. Like, you know, Patrick Stewart's phone is probably ringing off the hook about trying like as a next guy to go up and a uh, next celebrity to go up in space. So um, thank you guys so much. It's been informative uh, as always. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, we're going to be right back and we're going to get creative. Hey everybody, Michelle here with an iconic rock talk show moment and of course feeling a lot of different things about the passing last week of Meatloaf at age 74. Um, he had had some health problems, but it just seemed bizarre to imagine um, that he could leave us. Uh, even though nine months ago, it's just been nine months since the, since the passing of the man he called his brother, his musical partner, Jim Steinman. But at the time, he gave this raw, nakedly emotional interview to Rolling Stone and said, I don't want to die, but I have a feeling I could die this year because of Jim. And you knew it was a statement made in grief, but it was like, no, you're going to be here forever. You're, you're a force of nature. And he really was, and it's a phrase that I am seeing all over the place in articles written about him today. Um, he really was a force of nature. There was nobody like him and um, nobody before him quite like that, and I don't think we'll see his like again. And we're not going to see the like of someone who could take that unique style and be rejected so many times by the music industry. Every logical 
um, argument said that there was no way that could be a hit, and he had massive hits, not once, but twice in two different decades against every existing musical trend. He was a genre unto himself. And I think uh, those songs in his legacy are going to be remembered for a very long time. And judging by all the reaction videos, the kiddies are discovering meatloaf and having a great time doing it. And uh, some fun things were said on Twitter. Um, Boy George said that he remembered that meatloaf once turned him upside down at a Chinese restaurant in London, which... I don't know about you, I would have loved to have seen that. But I will leave you with this very nice tweet that I came across by a person named Janine Gibson. And it just kind of sums up a nice image that I like to keep. And she says, The important thing is that Meatloaf and Jim Steinman are somewhere in a gothic castle with billowing floor-length white curtains, 400,000 candles, a grand piano, lacy sleeves, and infinite epics to write. At some point... There will be a motorbike. I'll leave you with that image. This has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment, and we'll catch you next time. Have you been searching for that one heavy metal podcast that covers all of your favorite geeky topics as well? Well, look no further. The Metal Geeks Podcast is here to save the day. Whether you are into video games, films, comic books, theme parks, or even, yes, heavy metal, then the Metal Geeks Podcast is a place for you. Check us out on all of your favorite podcasting apps, and we are proud members of the ESO Network. Keep it geeky and keep it metal. Hey there, everyone, and welcome back. Now it's time for the Creative Outlet segment, and we're here with new friend of the show, Edgar Pasten, and he is here to talk about his project, American Kaiju. Yeah, hi, hi everyone. Thank you for having me, uh, guys. It's um, it's really nice to, to be able to speak to America Kaiju um, with, uh, with the folks out there. America Kaiju is a story about a five-year-old a monster hunter named Ike and his battles with American mythical monsters. So uh, it all, the foundation of this comic book is about answering one question. Can a five-year-old take on America's most dangerous mythical monsters and still have time for a nap? And what we try and do with this comic book is answer questions like those. Uh, my, my son and I come up with the most random things that we can, that we can think of. And of course, this is all coming from a five-year-old mind here and also from my uh, now seven-year-old's mind um, combined. So uh, the stories have a lot of lighthearted, fun jokes and, and that type of humor, but uh, it should remind you a lot of Saturday morning cartoons. It's a very easy. It's not going to be too preachy, hopefully, uh, but there are a lot of lessons for, for kids to learn throughout. That is awesome. Uh, I've seen the, the imagery you guys have put out already and some of the pictures. It looks beautiful, man. It looks beautiful. And how did you come up with the concept? You know, where you're just sitting around with your son one day and going, what should we do for a project? <laughs> uh, well, to, to some degree, but uh, the reality, this started well before he was born. This was back um, 2009. A buddy of mine went to our first um, – convention and we split a booth and as we're sculpting, you know, we're sculpting on top of a little figure that I made at the time. And, uh, you know, out of nowhere, this person comes up and is like, meh, Americans can't make kaiju. And then just walked away. And I ended up with like the, the, you know, foaming mouth, foaming at the mouth and, and just like, Oh man, I'm going to go get this person. And, and my buddy at the time, uh, stopped me and he's like, come on, man, 
you know, let it, let it go. You have people in front of us. Let's, let's do our thing, you know? So I, I did, I thought I did, you know, I thought I let it go. And that, that next week I come back and I was still fuming in a good way where um, it was still running around in my mind. Uh, but I turned it into a positive, right? So I, I said, you know, not for that person specifically, but I'm going to make sure that I answer that question or, or that, that, comment and say, yes, yes, we can. Right. Um, we have our own Kaiju. As a matter of fact, uh, we have our own monsters. We have our own, uh, lore here specifically in the U S I mean, back East where you guys are at, you know, the Rouge or Momo is, is one of the more universal, like miss, you know, Bigfoot, um, the Jersey devil, you have the Chupacabras, which I think a lot of people know about now. Um, you know, so I wanted to explore those monsters because growing up, all I did was, you know, King Kong and, 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 uh, you know, Godzilla and Mothra and stuff like that. And, you know, there's so much to explore here as well, where, you know, I thought, well, let's, let's give those monsters a, an identity and a voice and, you know, a certain look. Right. So, um, that's exactly what I did. I ended up sketching a bunch of monsters and coming up with the name Marikaiju as a, uh, kind of a response out of spite <laughs> to, that, to that comment, right? So it's uh, all that person's fault. Got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they, uh, they are responsible for the onslaught of America, I do. <laughs> I, uh, I, I love the book looks a lot of fun. And, uh, what's really cool about, uh, the, the Kickstarter project is not only do you have the stories and the comics themselves, but you've actually got, uh, figures of these, uh, creatures, which is, uh, just so very cool. Yeah. So thank you for noticing that. Um, that's actually a big part of my identity. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I've been an artist since I was nine years old now, million years, it feels like, but, um, the, the reality, I mean, for my professional career, it's been about a little over 20 years now. And for 20 years solid, I have been designing toys, making toys, sculpting by hand, doing that kind of thing professionally. Um, I, I've worked for a lot of the big name companies out there. Uh, and, you know, it had been, it's been about 10 years now that uh, of, of that time, it's been about 10 years now that I've, uh, that I broke out and started doing my own stuff. Um, and as a result, I have, the capability of making these vinyl figures that are, that are full on production quality figures. Um, they're not resin and they're not 3d printed, although they do start out sort of in that, in that way. But, um, these are now full production pieces, uh, same material as like a, a rubber ducky or like the Funko pop heads, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, it, it really makes a big difference to be able to show, um, you know, to the point I was making earlier about sculpture, you know, when you see it in person, it's, it's a whole different ball game and, and, you know, you can feel it and spin it and do all that stuff, you know? And so toys are a big part of my, part of my personal identity. Right. Um, so, so, you know, that was my contribution to this whole thing, aside from the, the, you know, initial story and everything, I, I felt so left out by, uh, by our variant covers on, on issue one, or, or, um, I should say our first campaign, uh, which was also successful. Um, thank, thank goodness. Um, it uh, you know it made me very jealous to see all these variant covers and all these artists getting so much love. So you know it was it was great to be able to throw something in of my own. That is awesome, man. That is really awesome. So cool. how can people find you? So uh, all over social media, internet, um, we can we can be found at, at Americaiju Comic or at Americaijucomic dot com. It's very simple. Um, Americaiju Comic on um, 
pretty much every social media. And what about for the Kickstarter? Kickstarter, uh, easiest way to get there is inked.pub forward slash Amerikaiji. And it's spelled just like it sounds, folks. <laughs> uh, we will have a link to it in the show notes for every all our listeners to for uh, to make it easier for them. And uh, yeah, and this is going to go through. Looks like it's going to go through the month of uh, February, right? It's um, yeah, March seventh. Okay, so but um, you know we always encourage people. Some of these uh, rewards are pretty limited, so act as fast as you can and 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 support this project. It's a great project, folks. Check it out. Edgar, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and we'll close up the show. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela. And today, this geek girl is talking about the cartoon Hell of a Boss. I've been trying to check out a lot more of the weirder and the indie cartoons that I may have missed last year. And Hell of a Boss was one that came highly rated. It's on YouTube. The creator just had another one of their animated pilots picked up by a major network, so their stuff is really fun and very, very well done. The story follows Blitz, a demon imp who starts a startup business in hell, where his employees are paid to kill people who have wronged their clients. This show is wonderful. It has amazing song numbers, spot-on animation, and the characters are really entertaining. They are all weird enough that you really want to know about them, and you really do start to feel for them as the story progresses. The animation style also gives me serious Invader Zim vibes, too. All of Season 1, minus the last episode, is available on YouTube to watch, but be warned, it does have violence and would really be something that you would think you would see on Adult Swim on Cartoon Network content-wise. But overall, I would highly recommend to watch this if you like weird and fun animation the characters look really cool they're very very interesting and the storyline just is a lot of fun well thanks for listening to a geek girl's take what will i talk about next week well you're gonna have to listen to find out So that's going to wrap up the show for tonight. Before we get out of here, let's say howdy to our friends over at Inked Marketing. Inked Marketing has Summer Rain. Summer is a bounty hunter and shadowmancer for the Bureau of Prenatural Investigations. She is sent to apprehend an unknown visitor who bears all the marks of a perturbed being from another world. Shadow's Daughter is a supernatural post-apocalyptic comic set in a world beset by pre-natural beings and the natural disasters which coincide with the rising of the demon moon. The comic features a strong female lead who possesses the ability to manipulate shadows as a physical object and who specializes in exercising a smart mouth and general kickassery. Check it out at inked.pub slash Shadow's Daughter pretty cool it starts january 28th definitely could check that out and see what we fun stuff we can get involved with there and of course thanks to our friends over at inked marketing also let's say thank you to our guests for tonight's show let's start with chip thank you as always my friend thanks for having me guys anything you want to shout out about sir um i guess if we're talking uh not necessarily space going completely on topic if you haven't been watching the Peacemaker TV show, I highly recommend. Oh. Um, I will warn you, it is very much an R-rated show. Do not watch this one with little kitties. If you're not sure if you like it, I recommend watching The Suicide Squad, but the show is hilarious. 
Also, slightly more on topic, if you haven't been watching the Boba Fett show, I recommend the book of Boba Fett. It is, especially if you like The Mandalorian, it is very similar, but it is a good show. I am watching both and loving both. Oh, yes. The only problem is I can't see the guest, the star of the Peacemaker. That's the only problem. <laughs> only when he moves his hand in front of his face. Exactly, when he goes like this. <laughs> so it's like, it's always fun like that. So definitely awesome having you back, my friend. And Mr. Mike Faulkner, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Anything you want to shout out about? You know, I will always, always talk about my site, creativecriticality.net. Uh, I've, I've talked a lot on this this show about uh, the Timestamps Project, which is where I'm talking about Doctor Who every week, going, going episode by episode. Um, and entering season seven now with Matt Smith on that one. But I also want to, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about science as well since we're here. Um, I started a, a new project over there called Steam Saturday, where I'm talking about you know science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics, uh, going out and looking for headlines and, and some videos that look interesting, and promoting those you know every couple of weeks. Uh, as a as a degree physicist and a nuclear operator and someone who works now in the nuclear industry, I'm like I got to get back to my roots. I got to get back to the science and engineering side of the house. Uh, so I'm starting that up now. You can find all that at creativecriticality.net. It's just because his house glows at night. It's okay. <laughs> And Dr. Scott, thank you so much. I am so glad you were able to make it tonight. Oh, yeah. Very glad to be here. Absolutely. It was hard to be with everybody. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? Oh, well, other than the Book of Boba Fett and like everybody else, uh, I would also add in there um, the Fraggle Rock Back to the Rock because uh, it was actually better than I thought. Uh, you know, lightning rarely strikes twice, but they have uh, some good content, and there was actually few episodes that I thought that were really, really, really well done. That's awesome. I'm glad to see Fraggle Rock come back, and in a great way, because, you know, some of the reboots they tried to do haven't been so loving and welcoming. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's being nice, and I really like to see what they came back with. So, it's pretty well, darn awesome. If you saw the, the little vignettes they did during covid Originally, they kind of built upon that, and uh, you can you can see where they've added technology where they can uh, to give them a chance to to do a little more dynamic things with the Muppets uh, and stuff like that. So, anyway, definitely worth a look. Most definitely agree with that completely. Thank you for mentioning that one, and thank you for being here, sir. As always, and Mr. Mike Gordon, we made it through another one, my friend. We did, and as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? Yeah, since we're talking about space flight, uh, I have a really one of my really good friends that I went to college with uh, actually uh, worked on an installation or two for the um, uh, Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. And uh, even though I didn't get a chance to go over there or to see it when I was in Seattle for that one uh, short day that I was there, um, it is one that I, I look at and I think is really fascinating. So, um, you know, we talked about where we're going as far as space flight goes. It's always cool to find out like where we've been, uh, and the history of flight in general and space flight. So I definitely give, um, uh, let people know that, uh, they can, if they are in the Seattle area, you know, um, sure, the Museum of Pop is really cool, but uh, Museum of Flight is also something that they should probably uh, take into account and, and check out. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's pretty worth it. 
Mm-hmm. Seattle has some amazing museums, and Boeing sponsors the Museum of Flight because it's right at Boeing Field, right south of Seattle, and it is amazing. You could even see a former Air Force One. You could also see one of those big radar planes that they fly up there, and there's some amazing, amazing planes that you could see there. I used to take William there when you know he was like three or four years old, and it was just amazing to take kids to and kids at heart are loving going there which is even better and you know also another place if you're on the east coast to go to is the smithsonian has a air and space museum they had the original which was right on the mall in washington dc but now out by dulles airport they have a second air and space museum and they actually have a space shuttle there they actually have the concord they have you know the blackbird they have the spirit of st louis and the Anoya gay and it's just it's just amazing seeing all these airplanes together and it's just it's just an amazing amazing visit if you get a chance and it's free, which is great to go see, you know. And, you know, that's the wonderful thing about the Smithsonian's. <laughs> I, I got very spoiled by it. And then the first time I went to another, a museum outside of D- the D.C. area, what? I have to make a donation to get in? What, what, what do you mean? <laughs> so it was, pre- it was pretty cool. Uh, my shout out. Um, Judy and I have been watching movies and we actually got to see Encantro. And by Disney, and it was wonderful. It was an amazing film. I think for me, it's probably my favorite Disney movie that they've done probably in the last 10 years. And it was, the music is amazing. It's, the story is great. And it's, it's just a fun film. And, you know, the, all the music is done by Lin-Manuel. So, you know, how bad can it be, you know? So it's it's pretty awesome, and I definitely would recommend it. And it's streaming now on Disney Plus for free if you have Disney Plus, and I think almost the, most of the free world does. So it's it's pretty cool. So definitely worth it and check it out. Uh, also, want to give a shout out. We have a podcast returning to the ESO Network as of this week. Mister Mike, want to give a shout out to what has returned? And it's ah, new year, new logo, same crew. We've got the uh, Dragon Con report. Uh, we have recorded the first episode. Um, it's not very long because there's not a lot of news. But, uh, you know, all the news that is out there is uh, we try to contain everything and try to get you ready for how you can prepare for Dragon Con, which is coming up in, oh, just nine short months. Yep. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be here before we know it. It's never too early to plan. So, uh, we are back, uh, Mike, myself, Darren, and Jen, uh, and uh, we're going to uh, try some new things this year, so uh, stay tuned for some more announcements about uh, guests, uh, probably that we're going to, well, that we're trying to get, as well as uh, we might even do a uh, live stream or two uh, this year, ah! so... So um, it's going to be fun. Um, uh, I'm glad that, uh, you know, it, I love Dragon Con and I love talking about Dragon Con, but I really love talking about it with these three guys. And I, you know, it's going to be fun. And I, I'm, uh, Mike, I'm glad Jen, we're back. Jen is not a guy. I forgot She's to tell a guy. you. She's a guy. <laughs> okay. You know, in the grand sense, in the royal sense of guys. right? Okay. All right. I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you knew the difference and, you know, so it's okay. So it's cool. And of course, you know, Speaking of that, 
we are going to be back again next week. And you know what? We're not going to be talking all about guys. You know, that, that Darren would love it if we were, but we are actually going to be talking about something a little more furry. Get that, get out of that, that thought and out of your guys. mind. Some guys. some guys, some guys, some guys. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we are going to actually be talking all about cats and pop culture. You know, we're going out on a limb here, folks. This is going to be fun to talk all about our favorite cats and, you know, how, you know, the cats, you know, we grew up with, the cats we go to the, see at the movies or read in the newspapers. You know, there's tons of different cats, even the comic books. So there's cats, you know, even who sing. So it should be very interesting to see, you know. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what the topic is going to be and how this one's going to play out. I'm going to be very interesting. Hopefully you guys had a great time tonight. We did too. So thank you guys as always for listening. Please, of course, you know, write us feedback at earthstation1.com. Thanks for listening to the Earth Station One podcast. We're powered by NSC. You can find them at nsctv.com. Remember, you could also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found, including Amazon. Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, you name it, we're there with the big guys. And tell all your friends about us. On behalf of myself, Mr. Mike Faber, Mr. Mike Gordon, Chip Johnson, Mike Faulkner, and of course, Dr. Scott Figay. thanks again for listening. We'll see you here next time on Earth Station One. Stay safe, hug your loved ones, and please, folks, get vaccinated already. We've been saying it for way too long. And you know what? It's only a little prick. And that's a whole different story on itself. But take care of yourself. Peace, and we will see you next time. Ciao. And we're done. Yeah. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Earth Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our T Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.